Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Look at the factors we have to consider, the age of the patient. Mm -hmm. How old are they when they get their device? How big are they when they get their device? How much will they grow? Welcome to Medical Monday, a special Heart to Heart with Anna podcast for Heart Month, February 2022. I can't believe this is our last episode for this special series for Heart Month, February 2022. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of your program. I'm also a heart mom. My heart warrior has a single ventricle heart and because of the nature of complex congenital heart defects like single ventricle hearts, it's a good idea to know about different devices that might be part of my heart warrior's future. Today, I have a very special guest. Greg Hummer is a senior technical services specialist for Abbott. According to the Abbott website, heart failure affects 6.5 million American adults and costs $108 billion. Heart failure affects 26 million people worldwide. Mr. Hummer, can you tell us about a device that can be used to help people who are dealing with heart failure? Hi, Anna. I appreciate this opportunity and thank you for having me. Heart failure is becoming an ever-increasing problem, not only in America, but globally. Mm. And one of the few signs of heart disease and heart failure are the conduction disturbances affecting how electrical impulses within the heart travel and therefore how the heart beats and how well it functions and pumps blood. Mm-hmm. There are several classifications of conduction disease, but in layman's terms, we're going to call them slow, fast, and asynchronous or out of sync. We'll discuss most of those a little bit later. Thankfully, uh, we have therapy available through several implantable cardiac devices to help treat each of these. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I know from having spoken to so many heart warriors that many of them have pacemakers, are cardioverter defibrillators. Can you tell me more about those devices? Sure. Our pacemakers will treat the slow heart rates. The heart has specialized electrical cells that control how fast our heart beats and how well those heartbeats are conducted throughout the entire heart. Those cells can get diseased. They can be traumatized by surgeries, other trauma, or just having scar and grow around these natural cells, which prohibit them from conducting appropriately. So the pacemakers are there to help treat those diseases. So there are several types of pacemakers classified by the number of chambers of the heart that they will pace. Single chamber pacemakers have one wire that goes into either the right atrium or the right ventricle generally. The dual chamber pacemaker controls not only the right atrial and the sinus node function, 
but it also controls the ventricle function if there is a diseased AV node, which is the second bundle of fibers that these impulses travel to going from the top chambers to the bottom chambers. Type of pacemaker is what is known as a biventricular pacemaker Mm -hmm. or a cardiac resynchronization device, which helps control how well the two ventricles beat together. Mm. The synchrony of those ventricles is paramount in how well our blood pumps and how well our hearts eject blood. Generally, we put those wires, those leads, in through the big blood vessels just below the collarbone, which is fine for the general population. But as we'll talk about a little bit later, it does raise some challenges in the congenital heart defect population. Right, especially really little kids or even babies who need pacemakers, right? Yes, and we do have very good options to treat those diseases. And again, we'll discuss that in a little bit here, but one step up from the pacemakers, again, they help maintain the synchrony between the top chambers and the bottom chambers. A defibrillator is an additional set of features not found in the pacemaker, which will treat heartbeats that go too fast. Implantable cardioverter defibrillators, ICDs, some people just call them defibrillators. Generally, they have pacemaker functions, but they also watch for the lethal arrhythmias that can arise from the ventricles, tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation. Many diseases that start off as a slow heart rate condition, maybe create scar in the bottom two chambers of ventricles, which can cause those chambers to beat very erratically and very, very fast. Mm-hmm. Fast heartbeats, they can get up above 200 beats per minute, are very detrimental to blood flow, to living. These defibrillators will detect those fast rhythms and have a specified treatment. That treatment, since they are pacemakers as well, the devices will first try to pace a little bit faster than the arrhythmia, than the fast heartbeat, and see if it can't terminate that heartbeat in that manner. That is relatively painless for the patient. And a lot of times that we see these people in the emergency departments, they don't know that that has occurred. And that's exactly what we want. That's exactly how we want these to be treated. Now, it's only going to do that anti-tachycardic pacing, as we call it, for so many episodes. Mm -hmm. It's going to try three times, six times is primarily how we program these. After it exhausts those three drivetrains or those six drivetrains, it will shock them because it's not going to allow them to continue on in a rhythm that could most likely be fatal. Yeah. I've had a number of people on my program who have been shocked and they tell me it's like being kicked in the chest by a horse. It's really, it's really scary. If you've ever been shocked by an electrical outlet in the United States, you know, it's 110, 120 volts. Our defibrillators in the industry are treating these lethal rhythms at 800 volts or more. That's just amazing. If you're asleep or you have passed out because of this fast heart rhythm, Mm -hmm. may actually be a blessing 
Right. Because you may not be cognizant of the fact that you just got shocked with a very, very high energy, which was concentrated in your heart. Yeah. Yeah. That's really scary. So can you tell me what the cardiac resynchronization therapy is? Is that what we were talking about just now, where you say that it overbeats in an effort to make the heart get back into a normal sinus rhythm? Well, the resynchronization is actually more from the pacemaker standpoint than the anti-tachycardic pacing. The anti-tachycardic pacing is strictly to try and terminate those lethal ventricular tachycardias and ventricular fibrillation episodes. Cardiac resynchronization is dealing, or biventricular pacing, is dealing with how synchronous the two ventricles are beating together. The specialized conduction tissues that run through the entire heart, also some of them split and go to the left ventricle, some of them split and go to the right ventricle. Mm -hmm. If one of those specialized pathways blocks, now you have one ventricle beating and a little bit later the other ventricle coming in and beating afterwards. And what that does is it just kind of moves the heart from left to right, kind of like swirling a glass of water. It's not going anywhere except just moving inside the vessel or the glass. So what we would like to do is have both those ventricles squeezing at the same time Mm -hmm. towards each other, which helps maintain the synchrony, as we call it in the industry, and helps eject that blood flow because they're pushing against each other and forcing the blood out to the pulmonic valve and the aortic valve off to the lungs and off to the body. Night Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Well, that makes a lot more sense to me now. And how is it that they can make the heart get back into a normal sinus rhythm? Is that where you have the dual chamber leads? Yes. Not only do we have the dual chamber leads, we have the bi-V or the CRT leads. So now we're placing three leads into the Mm. heart. We have one in the right atrium, one in the right ventricle, and then one we place through the coronary sinus into a vein on the outside of the left ventricle. So we can pace the atrium and both ventricles And we can alter that timing. If the right ventricle's 
coming in too soon or the left ventricle is coming in too late, we can pace the left ventricle a little bit earlier than we pace the right ventricle so that that electrical collision and that contraction meet in the center of the heart and help return the blood flow. It's just amazing to me that we can do this. And friends, if you look at the picture that I took of Mr. Hummer, he's actually holding up a couple of the devices. They're bigger than a quarter, but they're not as big as a bread box. (laughs) Considering (laughs) the amount of punch these devices can deliver, you would expect it to be so much bigger. And in fact, they were much bigger 20 years ago, weren't they? They were much bigger. In fact, probably 25 years ago, we weren't quite putting them in the position we're placing them now underneath the clavicle, just below the clavicle on the chest. We were putting them in the abdomen because they were so big and so bulky. And we've come such a long way with the discrimination. I have friends who had grandparents that had them put in the late 80s, and they were scared to death that they were just going to get shocked at any point in time during the day whether they felt unwell or they felt fine because the discrimination wasn't there. We didn't have the software available to have the device say, this is a normal rhythm. This is not a normal rhythm. This is noise, which we do now. These devices are little computers. They track how many times they pace. They track how many times they're sitting there just watching the heart do its normal thing, which is really what we want. Right. Just sit right. there and watch and yep, You didn't do your job and I'll pace the ventricle this time. And then it sits and watches again. And these defibrillators now will sit there and they'll watch the heart rates. And they say, that's nice. That's, that's 150 beats per minute. I'm not supposed to do anything with that. So it won't. Mm -hmm. And it won't do those things until it hits very specified parameters that we set. The doctor says, Hey, I want the ventricular tachycardia zone set at this heart rate. I want the ventricular fibrillation detection set at this heart rate Mm -hmm. and I want it to treat it this way and we can program all those parameters. It's really quite amazing what it's able to do. And don't they even have a memory where they can let the cardiologists know when they've had to be used? They do have a memory. They will tell us how many times each chamber has paced a beat for every channel that we have. So if we have a biventricular or cardiac resynchronization device, it will tell us how many times the right atrial lead has been paced, how many times the right ventricular lead has been paced, how many times the left ventricular lead has been paced. It will tell us that they went into atrial fibrillation for six minutes and 32 seconds on January 1st at 2.45 p.m. Amazing. It will will tell us that this gentleman went into ventricular tachycardia four times between 6 p.m. last evening and 8.41 last evening. It was treated with these therapies. Wow. So we go in there and we take our computer and we can download this multitude of information, pass that on to the physician who can then say, I need to adjust your medications. I think Mm -hmm. we need to change what we're doing with your plan of care. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to upgrade you to something different. Maybe these people had a pacemaker and they saw these ventricular tachycardia episodes that the pacemaker will not treat because it's not 
designed to do that. Pacemakers are designed to treat these slow heart rates. We need to get you upgraded to a defibrillator. Okay. So we help with the progression of care. We look for that global decision and timeline. How do we progress from the onset of heart failure up to including cardiac resynchronization therapy? And if that fails to help, do we have to talk about a ventricular assist device? Right. And we're hearing a lot more about that now than we did before. I think that's one of the newer technologies. Isn't that true? It is one of the newer technologies. It's a little bit outside my scope of practice, but obviously the doctors have to go by that guideline-directed medical therapy, and it's a progression. This person has heart failure, and there's classifications that they use in the physician world to classify this heart failure. You are a class one. We're going to do this, 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 and this. You've progressed to class two. We are now going to add this and this to your regimen. And it just progresses finally to the heart failure, the ventricular assist devices. And those can be either what's known as bridge to transplants to help carry you through to a suitable donor is found for you. They are also using them now as destination therapy. Yes. Let's talk about that briefly. I actually did a show on that and That's really interesting to me because 20 years ago, we weren't talking about anything like this. They didn't even have something like that. It has been a very slow progression. And these devices are incredible. People receive these devices in the OR. They spend a fair amount of time in the hospital. And a lot of the time they're in the hospital, they're learning how to operate their device. How do I change the batteries? How do I take care of my incisions? How do I take care of my equipment? It's a very intensive training program because these patients go home and they try to go on with their lives as best they can, either waiting for a transplant or knowing that I have an LVAD, I am going to have an LVAD, but I am going to try and live my life to the fullest that I can. And they have very, very full lives. They do. I had a dad come on my program. And he went into severe congestive heart failure to the point where even walking across the room was exhausting for him. And he was on a transplant list and they gave him an LVAD and he could walk his little girls to school. He could start participating in life again and not just lay around feeling awful all the time. It's amazing. Can Can you imagine standing at the bottom of a stairwell? looking up and wondering if you're going to be able to make it up a flight of stairs. I mean, that's some of the things that these people are dealing with prior to having a resynchronization device or having an OVAD. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to me how small they have become, how sophisticated they have become and accessible by so many people. Yes. I couldn't believe how many people have been affected. When I went on the Abbott website and I saw the numbers, I thought, oh my gosh, I had no idea it was that bad. It's almost like an epidemic, isn't it? It is. It's becoming an epidemic. And unfortunately, we're at a place in life right now where we don't know how much worse it's going to get. We don't really have a good idea. There's speculation, but we don't really have a good idea. What's COVID going to do to the cardiovascular system? Yeah, that's a scary thing. And I'm seeing a lot of people who are really, really afraid of that. They're afraid to get the vaccine because they're afraid the vaccine will damage 
their hearts, but they're afraid to get COVID because they're afraid COVID will damage their hearts. Yes. And that all remains to be seen, what the effect of COVID on the cardiovascular system is going to do. There's a lot of speculation now that there's an increase in heart failure and atrial fibrillation, but I think it's too soon. I'm not a medical expert by any stretch. That's for the others to decide and we'll determine how we progress from there. That all remains to be seen. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. It's still a scary time in 2022, but I think what's not scary is the fact that there are companies like Abbott, and there are other companies out there too, my friends, but there are companies out there that are working to help people who are in heart failure. And I'm so thankful that there are companies out there that are putting the money into the research and putting the money into creating devices that are smaller and smaller, so they're less obtrusive. And I know that one problem that a number of my friends have had who have had some of these devices is they worry about the leads disintegrating or breaking because some of my friends have had pacemakers almost all their lives. So when you go into two decades, three decades with these leads, it can be really scary to have to go in and replace those leads. It can be very scary and it's not an easy situation for the physicians or for doing transvenous lead delivery, again, mm-hmm. through the blood vessels of the heart. There's only so much space in those blood vessels and there is scarring that occurs once right. we place a lead into those blood vessels. So if we need to remove those leads to place new ones, it's a pretty significant event. It's probably more significant from a risk standpoint than placing the device initially. Right. And then, of course, if you are replacing something that's 20 years old, but you're replacing it, you're not just going to replace the leads. You're replacing everything, right? Generally, we will. If the device is relatively new, has just been changed, so the patient has had a device, a lead system for 15 years. Generally, the generators are good for anywhere between 5 and 10 years, depending on how much you use them. And then you need a generator change, which is a 
relatively simple procedure compared to the initial implant. Mm-hmm. Whereas the patient comes in the morning of the procedure, they are brought to the procedure room, an incision is made after they're comfortable. The old device is removed. A new device is generally, and our goal is to just connect a new device to those existing leads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it uh, seems like the leads are the most frightening part of this whole experience. They are the most frightening part. They are the, also the ones who are carrying a burden of the workload. They're the ones that are being flexed. Every time the heart beats, those leads are flexing. Every time the patient moves, those leads are flexing and deflecting. Every time the heart beats, the leads are deflecting and moving. We have bench testing out to many, 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 many years. All the companies do. We make these leads and we all put them on a bench in a piece of equipment that all it does is flexes it until failure. And then we analyze that and we all look for new ways to make the lead coating, the lead wires, the metal. What metal are we using? How are we constructing these leads? Mm-hmm. And some leads are manufactured and two days after they're born, they're put on the table in a machine and they just sit there and they flex all day long, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for years until they fail. Wow. <laughs> but it has to be done. And we do. It has to, to be know. done. It absolutely has to be done. And all of the device companies are pouring millions of dollars into the research around new materials, better longevity. Longevity is the key. Right. So especially since we're seeing these younger and younger patients getting the devices because you are able to make them small enough that they can fit inside a baby. Yes. But on top of that, the therapies that these heart warriors are receiving has been so amazing that now they're living to their third decade, their fourth decade, their fifth decade. Whereas before, even just 30 years ago, most of these children who were born with very complex hearts didn't make it to adulthood. A lot of them didn't make it out of the hospital. And the hardest thing for some of these physicians was going to somebody and saying, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. And that drives everybody in the medical industry to find something that we can do. I know. I love Um, it. so So I have the golden question here. Is it going to happen in our lifetime, Greg, that we see leadless devices. Yes, it's already happened. For what kind of devices? For pacemakers. Mm-hmm. So there are leadless pacemakers in development and actually approved by the FDA. And it's about the size of a Hershey Kiss. If everybody knows what those are, it's about an inch in length, very small, about the, the thickness of a pencil. Oh, that's not that bad. Um, And it's got a little grappling hook on it and it goes into the ventricle for patients who maybe don't have the vascular access Mm -hmm. that we would need to place a wire or wires into their heart. So yes, there are leadless pacemakers. They are on the market as we speak. There are more about to hit the market, which is nothing but good. Right. It seems like this is the future. 
because then we don't have to worry about replacing those leads. And as we were saying, when those leads become endothelialized, that's when there's an issue when you try to remove them or replace them. So these leadless devices will have to be replaced. They do have a finite longevity depending on how much they are used. The work is still being put into looking for longer longevity and easier removal and replacement of these leadless devices. But it is a very exciting time because we have to think about what happens for the congenital heart patient where we can't get and deliver these leads and the, the way we're accustomed right. through the venous system. The challenges in pacing and defibrillation therapy in congenital heart disease, look at the factors we have to consider, the age of the patient. Mm-hmm. How old are they when they get their device? How big are they when they get their device? How much will they grow? Yeah. And how do we place this device in the best manner suitable to allow them to grow, allow this device to continue working? Because we don't want to continue operating on patients every year as they grow. We need to have some sort of therapy that we can trust for a couple years, help the healing process, help the growing process. Because simply the normal pathways that we have become so accustomed to using to get to the heart sometimes simply do not exist in congenital heart disease. You know, a hemifontane, our main orifice into the heart has been closed in a hemifontane. Sure. We have baffles. We have shunts. Mm -hmm. It makes everything more complicated. (laughs) It makes everything more complicated because while we can deliver endovascular and, and transvenous leads through those baffles and those shunts, do we really want to be restricting blood flow? through those devices with a pacing leap. That's a scary thing. So do we place an epicardial lead, a screw-in lead on the outside of the heart, which sometimes is our best therapy and our best go-to procedure, especially on the infants? We will place them on the outside of the heart. Sometimes we can place a very strategically placed single pacing lead that will depolarize and make both ventricles contract. Wow. I didn't know that you could do that with the device on the outside of the body. That's amazing. Yeah. And in fact, the infant population, that's right now, that's how we're going because even these leadless devices are not approved to be used in infants. We're still investigating the therapy. Everybody in the business is investigating the therapy. We are looking to get there. We want to get there. Right now, the therapy for infants is an epicardial lead either during a corrective surgery that they're already receiving Mm -hmm. or we'll make a small incision on the chest wall, put a little lead onto the heart, run the, the rest of that wire or lead into either the abdomen or the upper chest, connect it to a device and close the incision. It's amazing to me what can be done. And they do save lives and they also improve the quality of life. Like what we were talking about with the LVAD, because nobody wants to live being a cardiac cripple. Nobody wants to live not being able to walk across the room or enjoy their day without fainting 
all the time or feeling like they're being kicked in the chest all of the time. That's not fun. So these devices really do help to save lives and improve the quality of life. Thank you so much for telling us so much about these amazing devices to help people when they're in congestive heart failure. Oh, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed my time here. It was fun. I learned a lot. (laughs) It was interesting getting a chance to see some of those devices. The technology is ever increasing. The options that we are given to help the physicians treat these patients is just phenomenal. 30 years ago, we would have to call the company and say, I need a dual chamber pacemaker. I need it programmed in this manner. I need the outputs programmed to this output. And that's how it was shipped. Right. Now we're receiving these devices. They're actually in standby mode. And there are hundreds of parameters for us to be able to program. So you're quite the technician. You work hand in hand with the doctor, making these devices as precise for each individual as possible. These devices are tailored to each specific patient. There is no one set of parameters that will work for everybody. And so we are given a huge number of programming choices to utilize. And if the doctor says, hey, I want you to do this, we can do that. I want you to do this. That's not something we can. So it's an open discussion. We follow their guidelines. We do what we can with our devices. And we hope that we're doing a good thing. And I think we are doing a good thing. I think you are too. So you were just saying how now by the doctor's bedside, you can actually program these devices for the patients. Once the device is inserted into the patient, what if their heart changes, which is apt to happen with these younger and younger patients receiving these devices? Do you have to take the device out to reprogram it? Or is that something you can do from a distance? We can do it from a distance, but it's about a distance of six feet. Okay, so as long as you're in the same room. We have to be in the same room. Our pacemaker and defibrillator programmer uses inductive as well as radio frequency communication with our devices. So we need to do an inductive interrogation with a wand that's placed directly over the device. What that wand and programmer do is say, I'm an Abbott rep. I'm a doctor. I am a nurse. I am allowed to look at this and make changes. And then it switches to the radio frequency telemetry. It's kind of like Bluetooth. In fact, some of our new devices do utilize Bluetooth. And then we can make changes at the bedside. Patients come in for clinic. We used to see them every three months as a follow-up in a pacemaker and defibrillator clinic. We have expanded that to remote transmissions where either the device is tied to their cell phone or the device is tied to a remote transmitter that sits beside their bed that checks their device on a nightly basis for any issues with the wires, with their heart rates, with the device itself. And if it doesn't see anything wrong, it goes back to sleep. Patient never gets awakened. Nothing happens. And it'll check again the next night. Wow. If it does see something This patient had a fast heart rate. This patient's still having a fast heart rate. It'll download a report just as if we were standing there with the computer programmer downloading the report and the information, sends it securely to the physician's pacemaker clinic. 
they review it. And if it's atrial fibrillation and they're already anticoagulated and there's nothing else they need to do, they'll simply just archive it. They know it's going on. If it's something they want to see you for, they'll call you. So you may have a physician phone call at 9 a.m. say, I'd like you to come into the office today. I want to check something with your pacemaker. Wow. I'm sure, first of all, that's saving a lot of unnecessary visits. It's a huge time-saving event, not only from that standpoint, but prior to the remote monitoring, if you were in the office on Monday afternoon at 2, you had an event Monday afternoon at 5, we wouldn't know about it until three months later. Oh, wow. If that happens today with our remote transmissions and all the companies have them, we will know tonight at 2 a.m. that something happened at 5 p.m. That's the kind of information that can save a life. That is the information that can save a life. That's correct. Because if it was a bad rhythm that the defibrillator treated, Mm -hmm. but we don't change the meds for three months, they're liable to keep having that situation. Right. If we see that situation, hey, you had something bad going on at 5 p.m. yesterday. What were you doing at that time? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I was mowing the grass or I fell or I was in a car accident or something. I need to see you. And now you're being treated, hopefully, within 24, 48 hours of the event. Mm -hmm. Getting a medication change, getting the full device interrogation. Is everything okay in here? Do I need to change your meds? Do I need to look at these leads? Do I need to make a programming change? It's amazing. It's incredible. Well, I appreciate you for all you do, and especially for providing so much information today for my listeners. Thank you, Mr. Hummer. Well, thank you for having me. Well, friends, that does conclude this last Medical Monday. I hope you enjoyed this mini-series during Heart Month, February 2022. Tune in tomorrow for a new episode of Heart to Heart with Anna featuring author Susan May and her son's transplant journey. Until then, remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time, wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern time.